You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. We're going to step into the messy this morning. This is week two, of course. And talking about family conflict. And, and a couple of observations I had before, and I think some of the ones that in our discussion we came up with are awesome. I, I'd just say here are some of the ones I came up with. Um, family conflict brings out a version of us that no one else sees. That, that's kind of, you know, that naked and unashamed idea, right? Like, like when we're in family conflict, there's a dynamic, there's a sense that the way we interact here is probably a little different. If you've ever been in a conflict with a family member and someone that you know outside of your family accidentally was at the right place at the wrong time or wrong time, you know, they noticed it. How embarrassing can that be for some people, right? Because you're engaging and it's not the you that you show anyone else, right? That, that, that can be hard. Um, family conflict sometimes makes conscious the unconscious struggles we face in other conflicts, so, so when you're fighting and arguing with a family member, the way that you are there is very, it, it just happens. And so when you have these other conflicts that aren't family related, things may pop into the conversation that look like that dynamic over there, but maybe a little more guarded. Does that make sense? Some of the things we often talk about is in conflict, um, sometimes we revert back to childhood roles, right? And we respond in childhood sort of like instinct. And those things can pop up in these other situations, even surprising us. And um, sometimes those unconscious things become more clear. Family conflict, of course, is messy. And um, I, I would say social media makes this even messier if you're in that world. If, if you have social media accounts and your family members have social media accounts and you say something on Facebook and they say something back to you on Facebook, you can create conflicts that didn't exist 10 years ago. And people do not have filters for how to process those situations. They don't have tools. And so people will say things in text, in typing, that they wouldn't say to your face. Some people might say it to your face, but, but you get the idea. Like there's this sharper edge sometimes in some dynamics that brings out sort of a, a dehumanizing side of conflict being mediated by a screen. And that's, that's a big problem. That's a big challenge that I think um, adds to the conflicts that are already present. Um, and so here's the question today. Family conflict is something we want solved. But the truth is it might not always get better. That's the truth. Like, the truth of the matter is, the conflicts you have in your family dynamic, especially um, those outside of maybe if you have a spouse, right? So we always are going to say, let's do all that we can to work this out. Let's do all that we can to fight for marriage, to fight for relationship, right? We're always going to be about those things. But, but the truth of the matter is, outside of the perpetual desire to get better at conflict in that dynamic and with your own children, when you start going backwards in time to your own parents and your own broader family sphere, there could be dynamics that are not easily healed. And what do you do about that? How do you feel about that? What do you hold in those situations? And that's one of the things that I think 
Jesus talks about in a way that's very profound. But before we get to Jesus, I have some ideas that I think are really helpful for framing the discussion. So um, first one, this is from John Paul Lederach. He's a author who wrote the little book of conflict transformation. This is what he says about conflict transformation. Conflict transformation is, hey, we're in conflict, but we want to transform through it and find something, you know, we call it resolution sometimes, right? This is what he says. He says, conflict transformation is to envision and respond to the ebb and flow of social conflict as life-giving opportunities for creating constructive change processes that reduce violence, increase justice in direct interaction and social structures, and respond to real-life problems in human relationships. The, The key here that I'm really honing in on is opportunities for creating constructive change. That's one of the gifts of conflict. Conflict actually can be an opportunity for change, for transformation. Now, he's going very deep here. He's talking about violence, right? So between nations, between people groups, um, injustices in society. I mean, it does all of that, and it comes all the way back down to the family system. And so, can these things be transformed? That's one of the biggest questions we have. Last week, we introduced some fun images of transformi- uh, or conflict styles, right? I'll just remind us that we're not going to be on these too long. The turtle, right? We talked about turtles who hide, sort of hold back, sort of don't really engage at all. They're just sort of like, nah, that's not my deal. Sharks, they go all in, devour their prey. They are um, directive in their arguing style. The teddy bear, I just want to be your friend. I just want to get along. I, they value relationships, but not outcomes, where sharks would say, we want outcomes without relationship, right? And then Jesus, of course, we said, is the wise owl who sits on books. And this owl is um, an image of the wise sort of person who, who says, I want to value both relationships and outcomes. And to do that, that, that's challenging stuff. And we talked about an example of how Jesus walked that through in John chapter 8 last week um, with those dudes that had stones in their hands trying to kill an innocent woman. And so we're going to come back to some of that uh, topic from last week later, but what I want to say is this, that Jesus and his owl-like wisdom has a lot to show us about family interaction and family dynamic as well. And we are going to jump into a passage or two where this comes up. And some of these may be familiar for some of you, maybe not, but I'm always fascinated by passages that talk about Jesus' own interaction with his family. And so in Matthew chapter 10, we'll start there. It'll be on the screens if you want to find it um, in your little phone. You can do that as well. But Matthew chapter 10, um, 34 through 39. This is one of the stories we have um, from Jesus. Verse 34 says, Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. Let's stop there. We are a church that's called a peace church. Uh, We're in the Anabaptist tradition. We have a value that says peacemaking. We practice nonviolence and contend for others, right? So, So this is one of the passages that comes up a lot of the times when we have these discussions. Look, I, and this isn't me trying to convince you of nonviolence in like 30 seconds. Here's my point. Um, what Jesus is doing is he is giving us an image of the kind of division that he causes, And so 
Jesus here is using a metaphor. He says, look, I'm not, I'm not a peace bringer. You all want me to be a peace bringer? Look at what I'm going to do to family systems. Check this out. It's like a sword coming down. It's like bringing down the hammer, right? Like these are all images we might use to talk about something intense. So Jesus, being a good first century Jew, has this archive of images and illusions, and this is just how they talk, and um, we do it too, right? We could talk about um, the day the Twin Towers fell as an earth-shattering event, and we know they didn't fall because of an earthquake, right? I've used that example before. We know they fell, and it was experientially earth-shaking, right? Same thing here. So don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And Jesus didn't even have to try that hard on that last one. Let's be honest. That didn't even have, yeah. <laughs> Come on, Jesus, like Captain Obvious here. Okay, uh, verse 36. People's enemies are members of their own households. That's very encouraging, Jesus. Thanks. Those who love father or mother more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who love son or daughter more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who don't pick up their crosses and follow me aren't worthy of me. By the way, pause there. What is this whole deal about picking up crosses? He hasn't even been executed yet, right? That's always one of those things. I'm like, all right, is the author like sort of like inserting words into Jesus' mouth? Like what's going on? Well, again, idiom and understanding the culture of the day, um, hundreds of people were being executed outside of Jerusalem all the time. This was just Romans killed people on crosses. This is not unique to Jesus in any way in the first century. In fact, what makes the um, idea of Jesus being executed so fascinating, and I mean that in a sincere way, not a weird way, um, it's fascinating because it's the worst version of death you could experience, but it's not unheard of. It's not unique. Like the cross is something that lots of people experienced. And so, so for Jesus to say, like, carry your cross, it's like, like the criminals we see carrying their cross to the hill, right? Like, like there is a burden you must bear, and it's like the oppression of the Roman Empire on the backs of people who do crime, who resist. And so Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to know what it is to pick up a cross, this burden, this way of life that I'm picked up to follow me. Verse 39, those who find their lives will lose them, and those who lose their lives because of me will find them. So, so here we know Jesus is talking in very colorful language. And, and one of the things that um, I think he's really trying to do is trying to provoke our imaginations to understand what it really looks like to follow Jesus. And family systems are just one of many spaces where this comes to light. And so if we were to just think about family, one of the ideas that came to me as I was reading this is, I'm um, going to be on the screen, following Jesus is an invitation to differentiate from your family of origin. Differentiate. Um, there's, there's a lot of ways to define that word, but basically, what does it look like for you to become you and not necessarily you plus them, right? That's probably the simplest way I can put it. You can Google it and read an article or two if you really want to go deep into that. But the idea is that your identity isn't enmeshed in the identity of the other in unhealthy ways. Of course, in healthy ways, this is good, like we have shared identity. But in unhealthy ways where your identity is wrapped up in how they see you, perceive you, 
treat you, etc. You're invited um, to become a person who stands on their own feet. Does that make sense? So differentiate. Um, Here's what's so fascinating to me. Differentiation is a fairly modern idea. And Jesus in the first century, the wise owl that he was, is saying, look, if you follow me, get ready. You are going to have to differentiate. You're going to have to step out of the system that feels right. You're going to have to step out of the system that feels natural. And you're going to have to be your own human being. And it's going to cost you something sometimes. Now, what Jesus isn't saying is you shouldn't like your parents. I mean, just like he's not saying, I have a sword and I'm going to start using it. Like, he never does that, right? Like, we know when he says, I brought a sword, um, he doesn't actually use any sword in any of the stories we have about him. So, so, again, in the same way, he's not saying, I just really want you to not like your parent or not like your whoever. But he is definitely getting at this idea that your identity, insofar that it's wrapped up in the identity of your family dynamic, you can become enslaved to that. You can become less than your, um, your, the God of the universe desires you to be. And so differentiation is a gift that you both give to yourself, but you can also give to the people in the dynamic. Because when you step outside of the dynamic and say, I'm going to stand on my own two feet. I'm going to, I'm going to be the kind of person whose identity is wrapped up in how God sees me and how um, I've come to know myself. Well, then all of a sudden, your family members who maybe have been part of something that feels a little unhealthy have to ask new questions of themselves, don't they? You've actually like, invited them to ask questions, even if you haven't had to be blunt about those questions. Why isn't so-and-so at every single holiday? Well, I got married, and I have a spouse, and we have two families now. So I'm not going to make you the only thing that matters during the holiday, right? I'm sorry. I love you. I'll try again. We'll flip-flop holidays every year, whatever. But that's just the deal. Differentiation, right? So, so these are the kinds of things that um, I'm reminded of as Jesus comes in and says, Look, Sometimes following me is going to mean that you've got to pull back from that original narrative you've been a part of and find your identity in him. Because sometimes we get into these spaces, and we've already alluded to it, where we talk to our family, and all of a sudden, you're not you at 32, you're you at ninth grade, right? The ninth grade version of yourself is not equipped. Your brain isn't even developed enough to have good arguments. Like, we just know this. Like, like the ninth grade version of you or this sixth grade version of you, whichever version of you comes up when you are at the Thanksgiving dinner table this year talking about Donald Trump's second campaign, whatever version of you shows up in that conversation, ask yourself, is this the version of me that I am now? Or am I starting to draw from the way that I held conflict 20 years ago, 10 years ago? And then you can begin to ask yourself, what would it look like to be me, fully adult, fully present, fully secure in who I am, and then to step into this conversation honorably? That, that's, I think, Jesus' invitation, as well as many other things. And so Jesus doesn't just want us to grow up in our commitment to Jesus, but in our commitment to being like Jesus, which is all about what does it look like to become mature and whole like he shows us to be mature and whole in his own life.
So we've got to know the dynamics, though. Like, if you want to experience this sort of, like, stepping into family conflict and, and knowing that it's not ninth grade you, knowing that it's not sixth grade you who's stepping in there, and knowing how the, the cards have been set, maybe we might say, or how, how sort of the table has been set for conversation, and asking yourself if it's worth engaging, um, there's a great tool that I want to introduce you to. So there's this uh, former professor, his name's Ron Claussen. He was at my seminary, Fresno Pacific University. He founded something called the Center for Peacemaking. And um, he came up with this, this sort of method for just thinking about the kinds of tables that have been set for conflict and what dynamics might be present. Now, this is just one model. We're going to have multiple models. Nonviolent communication is going to cover a lot of these kinds of ideas. But here's just one way to sort of like begin that conversation since we're specifically talking about family. And I think this so, oh, this so feels like family in a lot of ways. So um, you'll see up here, the eyes are people in the conflict, right? So they're the ones who either have some sort of conflict or it might just be a decision that they have to make. It might not even be like a, a conflict conflict, just like, do we do this or do we not? We kind of have different ideas about it. Let's process it, right? Like that, that's a good, easy conflict because it's not like you have animosity towards each other at that point. But then there's some conflicts that are real conflict where there's actual animosity. And so the eyes are the people in the mix of it. X's that you see in a couple of these are outside parties, but not in the conflict themselves, but they are present to the conflict. Does that make sense? Um, we might call that a mediator sometimes, or it might be a source of authority. We'll talk about the differences. And then the circle in each of these relates to where the power is held. Does that make sense? So in the first one, how many of you have been in a conflict? You don't have to raise your hand, that'd be weird. But how many of you have been in a conflict where you're arguing with a family member and in the situation, the dynamic quickly comes to you have less power than the other person because they're an elder or they're just better at arguing or they're manipulative and you're nice or whatever, right? And the power dynamic in that situation is like, how do we do this, right? So, so hopefully that gives you a sense. We're going to go through each one of these really quick, though. I'm going to give you some examples. They're not all going to be about family, but hopefully this gives you a visual for thinking about what it's like when you step into that Thanksgiving meal and you step into that conversation you don't want to have and deciding how do I navigate the terms here. Because if you end up in a, a number one kind of situation, I think my suggestion would be don't do it. Just stop. Think it through, name it maybe, but, but maybe really ask yourself what would it look like to be in, and we're going to talk about the positives in three and four, but let's just jump in. So option one, one person has the power, as I've already said, in a given one-to-one -one conflict. Here's some great examples of this, by the way. A police officer making an arrest, right? Someone steals something, a police officer has to intervene. That's a conflict of some kind, and sometimes those things make sense. So it's not like it's always 100% negative. A parent picking up and moving a small child. Think about the child running towards the street. You want someone to have the power. That's okay, right? Or a person with a firearm makes demands of a victim. We don't like those kind of dynamics, right? So, so again, these are all sort of dynamics. Here's a couple of real-world examples, right? So imagine a boss says to an employee, do things my way or you will be fired. As an employee who needs a job, you might feel that you have no other choice but to go along with what the boss just said, right? That's a power dynamic. 
and you just have to, at least you're choosing, to cave. Um, here's another example. Two friends cannot agree, a super simple one, two friends cannot agree on where they want to go together to eat, so one leaves and says, okay, just call me tomorrow. Where's the power? Well, instead of collaborating, I've just decided to withdraw. I've taken the power and I've walked away, right? So these are, these are all situations that can come up. Let's go to number two here. Number two, the X is outside, right? So the X, the outside person or objective criteria, makes the decision for the eyes in the conflict. So a court with a judge or jury. That makes sense, right? There's authority, there's power in that circled X. Um, a wise or trusted elder, okay? Or a principal with students. The power is invested somewhere outside of the conflict. And there are situations that maybe call for this. It's not always bad. Although I would say that you really should keep an eye on it, especially in adult conversations with your own family, right? Because this usually isn't good in those dynamics. You don't need to go to your family with a court in mind. If you have court in mind, go to court, okay? Like, like you gotta be honest about this. So here's a couple examples though. Two farmers disagree about the boundaries between their fields, so they hire a surveyor and determine the boundary for them, right? So a surveyor says, okay, you guys can't agree on where your fields start and stop, so a surveyor's gonna come out here, they have the authority, they have the power, they're gonna draw the lines, and you're gonna be done. Great idea, actually, in that situation. Um, in an informal soccer game, like a pickup game, two players disagree about whether the ball is in or out when it hits the line. So they look up the rule book and follow the official rules right? Well, the rule book tells us the answer to the question. It can be a good thing. Ends the conflict pretty quickly if both honor the actual rules. Now, if you have your own, like, street rules of anything, right? How many of you have played a game and someone has, like, special rules? Oh, yeah. Now, sometimes special rules are hilarious, but most of the time they're frustrating, right? So, okay, we get it. Okay, option three. The X, the person outside, right? the objective criteria or person, assists as a mediator or gentle presence, but the eyes ultimately come to an agreement on equal footing. This is your classic mediation scenario, right? Where you maybe both agree that this person stepping into the conversation would be helpful. And so we have this conversation, this person stands back and says, hey, I'm observing in you um, these tendencies. And hey, I'm observing over here that you haven't quite stated what your need actually is, right? And you kind of have someone to sort of help just make helpful observations. Not decisions, but observations. Um, and a couple examples might be, you know, the ones on the street, or on the, on the screen, I should say. Um, professional mediation with two or more parties, um, like I said. Or a mediator between a victim and an offender. That's actually a really, really special thing. In the Anabaptist tradition, this has been something very important. That's our Christian tradition. We, we have these things where um, mediation between victim and um, offender have, have really brought a lot of justice and healing to people um, who decide to go through those kind of reconciliation processes. Here's another example, though, from life, right? Uh, those are all examples, but here's a longer one. Two former business partners have a conflict about how the money left over after the di dissolving of their partnership should be distributed. They ask a common friend to join them for a meeting to help them talk about it. Finally, the two of them decide on what they agree is fair and friendly 
in the way to distribute the money, right? So again, these are just all sorts of ideas about, and I would say three can be a very healthy space in family conflict, um, and we can talk more about that. So finally, let's go to four. So three, you can imagine the family conflict and maybe um, a trusted mentor if you're, if you're the kid who's also the best friend of the parent, right? Someone who's kind of this third party can come in maybe. And now in number four, you don't need that third party. Number four, you just say, we recognize the dynamic. We honor our conversation together. We have the same set of rules. Maybe those rules are going to be, you know, talked about next week, right? Some nonviolent communication rules or guidelines for how we engage. And we understand that the power is together. The outcome is together. So here's uh, an example that's not on the screen. You can see those up there. Um, One is spouses want to go away for the weekend, but one wants to leave on Friday night and the other Saturday afternoon. Have you ever had a conflict like this? Those of you who are married, they, they tend to become something they weren't. Just a discussion about a time to leave becomes a, we don't like each other for a couple days. It's very bizarre. It's how it goes. Let's be honest. But after some discussion, because they're in zone four instead of one, And by the way, the best version of one that's actually the worst version of one is when each of them think they're the ones with the circle. (laughs) You see that in marriages a lot, right? Rather than we're both in the circle, right? So, So here, what do they decide? Well, after some discussion, they decide, hey, actually, that first suggestion about leaving Saturday morning, yeah, I think that actually makes sense now. Thanks for clearing that up. Great example of that. Um, Parents and a teenage daughter argue over what time she has to be back home for curfew. They listen to each other's concerns and search for some way of resolving it that they can all agree on, and eventually they come up with some sort of complex yet agreeable solution, right? These are great examples of four. You can see why three and four are preferred for family conflict. Okay, so so holding those, we're going to ask a few more questions as we sort of dive into the latter part of this teaching today. What do we do? Like when, when Jesus says like, hey, you're going to inevitably be part of conflicts because of your convictions about me. I mean, I know so many people who are Christians who have convictions about the world because of Jesus and those lead to family conflicts. Like the Trump 2020 conversation, well, wherever you end up on that, right? Like, like that is fascinating to me. And so we have one other really clear example of this family dynamic with Jesus. And this is what we have. This is actually in Mark's gospel. And I'm going to skip some of the, like, so there's, like, an intro. A bunch of stuff happens with the scribes and Pharisees. They call Jesus Beelzebub and all kinds of stuff. And it's pretty interesting, but it's just really long. And then it comes back to family again, okay? So it's kind of, that's the context of the story. This is what it says. It starts out at the end of verse 19. Then he went home. And the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him. For the people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. I love this. Have you ever been told that you've gone out of your mind? Or that you're wrong? Or that you have bad ideas? Or that you are foolish? Yeah, of course. Jesus gets it. Skipping ahead now, about 10 verses, to verse 31 of chapter um, 3 of Mark. It says, Then his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, 
Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. They're asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Again, this differentiating tendency in Jesus shows up. And I, I think a few things as we sort of land this morning and really try and hold some more stuff, and as we move towards next week where we get really practical um, that Jesus invites us to hold, I think another thing we find is that when we have family conflict, that Jesus relates and empathizes with us. And that's a really big deal. God isn't like distant from your family dynamic. God has had family dynamic. Like that's one of the cool things about this belief. We call it the incarnation. This idea that God becomes human. That in becoming human, Jesus actually dealt with the drama that you deal with. And, and sometimes you may have nothing left to give and you may just think to yourself, okay, Jesus, I, I need something here. I don't know what it is, but I, I need to know that you're with me in this. I need to know that you love me in this. I need to know that you care about me in this. Not even that Jesus agrees with your opinion, but that Jesus is with you and gets the dynamic. That, that can be a huge gift. He knows what it's like to be dismissed by family members. Another idea that I, I think is really helpful is that when we have family conflict, perhaps even unresolvable conflict, Jesus redefines family. That, depending on your family dynamic, this can be one of the most liberating teachings of Jesus in the world. Some of us would say, you know what, I have, I have pretty um, healthy and beautiful dynamics with my parents. We don't always agree, but there's gracious space to disagree, and, and that's good, and we're, we're fine, and, and it's beautiful. Some of us, however, realize that there's a level that you may want to go with parents, grandparents, cousins, uncles, aunts, etc., siblings, that you just can't go. Maybe there's a safety issue. Maybe there's too much trauma in every story involved to actually be able to sit together on equal footing. Whatever that might look like, Jesus asks us the question like, okay, who really then is my mother and my brother and my sister and my, right? The redefinition of family um, has been really healing for me at times. Now, now, in my own life, I have a mixed bag. I have some family that I feel very safe and secure and loved and myself with. I have other family that it's kind of a mixed deal. And yet Jesus says, look, these people that you do life with, these people that you trust, these people that you let in because of me, like, like that's family. Like, who are my brothers, sisters, mothers, etc.? They're the people sitting with me right now in this moment. That's what Jesus says. Now, it doesn't make the pain go away, but it empowers you in a different kind of way, that you can actually be part of a different kind of family dynamic. Now, the challenge, of course, is that churches aren't always healthy either. And that's why we need to have series like this, where we talk about family, but we're also talking about church family, right? Like, we're talking about all kinds of different dynamics. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, look, you can redefine family, not to the neglect of pain, not to the neglect of suffering, not to the neglect of injustice, not to the neglect of dynamics, but to be empowered, to be more yourself. The more 
you that Jesus sees, that, that's a gift. And so, to kind of wrap up here, here's one last idea that I think really comes through in these stories. Is that when we have family conflict, Jesus shows us that we can, and this is a quote from Ephesians, speak the truth in love. Jesus is saying, don't back down. We looked at this last week, and we're going to talk about some of those ideas from last week as we close. Because the, the truth of the matter is, you can't be truthful without love and look like Jesus. And in fact, I don't know if anything that doesn't have love attached to it is actually all that true. Speaking truth without love is always going to lead to less love in your life, less flourishing. And so Jesus says, look, don't avoid the hard conversations and it's going to lead to division. You, you, may not, you may not be on the same team anymore. But the model that he has for us is always, I do this in love. Even at his like weirdest moments where he calls people like broods of vipers. Like the ways I, I just imagine him kind of laughing as he says this, you know? Like, like Jesus, he's not like this anal retentive, like you brood. You know, Jesus is always compelling and modeling love. A love that goes so deep for Jesus that he dies for the people he calls broods of vipers. And so, as a reminder, as we think about even truth-telling, as we think about these dynamics that come to the table, we have to ask ourselves, what does love look like when we step into these dynamics of shared power, the goal being shared power, shared conversation, shared conflict? What we talked about last week, we said, Jesus' wisdom for speaking truth and love. And I'll, I'll just remind you, again, these come out of yet last week. You can go back if you want to check that out. Um, understanding both, both perspectives, not agreeing with them necessarily, but understanding the dynamic, exposing dehumanizing behavior, saying, look, the way you're acting right now is saying to me that you don't think I'm actually as human as you. That's truth and love right there. Loving yourself and loving the other. Because when someone else is dehumanizing someone else, you're actually noticing that when you dehumanize someone else, you're actually becoming less the human that you're designed to be in that moment. You, you follow the, yeah. See the third option. What are, what are the options here in the dynamic that we wouldn't see otherwise? Well, in option three and four, you might get there. And then choose love, not winning. That was a big one last week. Choose love, not winning. I'm going to end with a story. I'm going to kind of read a little bit. It's a little long, but there's this book that I never read, but I found the story from this book called The Preaching Event by an author named John Claypool. And this is a story he tells about two brothers as we wrap up here. He says, early on, these were brothers that were inseparable. Maybe you have a sibling like that, that you have had a season of life, or maybe you just are still in that space where my sibling and I, we have a great thing going. Well, they'd become old enough to take over the family business, and they had this local store. They were partners in business, and they were awesome. They worked together, and they were thriving in this local business. And one day, one morning, a customer entered the store and purchased an item for a buck. Now, this is back in the day, so a buck was a little bit more. And it's an older story. And so there's a brother, and he waits on the customer, and he sets the dollar on top of the cash register while he walked the customer to the door. So there's this transition period where he doesn't put it in the register, he just walks away. And, and while he's doing this, he, he returns to the cash register to find that the dollar is missing. 
He then decided to ask his brother if he had put the bill in the register, and he said he had never seen it. That's funny, the first brother says. I distinctly remember placing the bill here on the register, and no one else has been in the store since then. Have you ever had an argument like this? I remember doing this thing, and there's no way that this thing didn't happen, therefore you're in trouble, right? Oh, yeah. So at this point, the first brother could just let it go, and there were, there, you know, the problem would have been, okay, whatever, right? Unspoken resentment probably, but whatever. But an hour goes by again. Are you sure you didn't see that dollar and put it in the register? Other brother, tired of the accusations, becomes angry, and basically it builds and builds and builds, and this is what they end up doing. They end up actually building a wall between the stores. They split the stores so they're stores side by side, and they're now competitors, and that competition happens for over 20 years at this point over this dollar. Well, something happens, and someone comes into town and um, comes to one of the stores, the store on the left, I presume, because that's where I would go, the first store or second store, I don't know, but goes into the first store, and um, he finds out that these are the same business owners or whatever, and he says, look, um, I have something I really need to get off my chest. I, I was very much in a bad place. Some 20 years ago, I passed through this town. I was out of work. I didn't have a place to live. I jumped off of a train car. I had no money. I hadn't eaten for days. When I came out of the alley outside, I looked into your store window. I saw a dollar bill on the cash register. Slipped in. I took it. But recently, I became a follower of Jesus. And this conversion and acceptance of Christ has really changed the way that I think about things. And I know it was wrong of me to steal your dollar bill. And I've come back to pay you with interest and beg you for forgiveness. He then went on and said, I'll do whatever it takes to make this right. So the brother begins to weep. <laughs> right? You ever, like, thanks a lot. And just, you can imagine the scene. And the brother just said, hey, I have one request. Can you just do me a favor and go next door and repeat that story one more time? The two embrace each other. My assumption is they tear down the wall. And love finally does bear out. When unhealthy dynamics enter family situations, the amount of time, the amount of suffering emotionally can be just devastating. Sometimes we can't do anything, even from a healthy space, to change the dynamic because it takes more than one person to really change a dynamic. But there are some times where we revert to earlier patterns of living, earlier patterns of selfhood, earlier ninth grade Kurt shows up. And in that storyline, I have a decision to make. Are feuds worth it that aren't actually worth it? That's not for me to decide for anyone in this room. But I want to invite us to say that if love is our measure, and if Jesus is our identity, and if we've redefined family, if we've differentiated with Jesus, if we've found the human being that God is inviting us to be, the more we do that, the more we can step into those spaces and avoid those kind of scenarios playing themselves out. So I want to pause, and I want to just give us time to take a breath and hold whatever it is that you're holding.
And we're going to transition to the back end of our, our singing together and um, take communion together and uh, eventually we'll head to lunch.